Thank you for the opportunity to be here back at Covenant College. It's especially fun to be here with my cousins, Elias Vetters and Fiona Glazier. So really excited to see them in the audience today. So um, my uh, topic today is life in D.C., meaning sort of walking through my career working in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill and specifically in working to protect the lives of the unborn. So, um, let's find this clicker. So I want to start by, oh wait, I'm supposed to do it this way. There we go. Alright, here we go. So, moving to Washington, D.C. Washington is often referred to as Hollywood for the ugly. And that stems from a lot of different reasons. Um, unlike Hollywood stars that are looking to find their spot on the um, silver screen, you find people throughout Washington, D.C. looking to uh, be found on cable news, social media, and perhaps to be the next president of the United States. It's also true about how a lot of young people come to Washington and find their start. So like that starving would-be actor or actress who moves to Hollywood and decides to um, wait tables and try to find their next big break, a lot of people move to D.C. Is that better? Sorry. Okay. All right. We've got our technology down. Thank you. Thanks. All right. So a lot of people move to D.C. and they, um, you know, there's lots of people who want to work on Capitol Hill, so you kind of have to be in town to be looking for a job. So like the Hollywood actress working um, at, a, at a restaurant, I moved to D.C. in the uh, winter of 2002, got a job at the Macaroni Grill, and spent my nights working there and my days walking around the halls of Congress looking for, um, for a job. And um, that is a typical, typical start. But it wasn't as if I um, came to D.C., came to Covenant, graduated. This was always my plan. There were certainly indicators that this is what God had for me. In high school, I was interested in politics. I was a Senate page. I'd worked on some campaigns. But I also had this feeling like, really, what difference does it make? Does government really make a difference in people's lives? you know, maybe I should be a doctor. So I spent a semester in the biology department, and that was not my calling. <laughs> so way to go for those of you who um, are in a pre-med major. But for me, that was not, uh, not my calling. So, um, so I majored in business and history. After graduation, I went to work for a small business. Um, but in the fall of 2001, kind of just felt this draw. Should I move to D.C.? Um, look for a job there? Where would I start? And it wasn't exactly a lightning bolt as much as just a why not? Um, I didn't have a family, didn't have a big career to give up on. Why not? Let's just go and give this a try, push on the door, so to, say, so to speak, and see what happens. And in some ways, it was a little bit of an unusual door for me to push on. I don't really like the spotlight. I'm not actually someone who likes to get into a big fight. And D.C. is basically one long big fight. So what was it that I wanted uh, to do in D.C.? But if you're like me, don't let that dissuade you from considering a career in public policy. Because 
while you see a lot of flashpoints on the national stage, what goes on behind those flashpoints is a lot of really interesting and exciting work. Drafting legislation, building coalitions, um, analyzing bills, and doing research. And I really enjoy that work. I sometimes think about congressional staffers, kind of like Aaron and her, holding up the arms of Moses in battle. When Moses couldn't hold his arms any longer, they came along and lifted them for him. And I think the staff's job is to be there for those people who are willing to put themselves out there into the public discourse, to be there to provide that support throughout um, throughout the, the days and weeks and, and months of, of work on Capitol Hill. So um, it, what also drew me to the field and sustains me today is an appreciation for fairness and for freedom and for fundamental human rights. And <clears throat> I believe the most basic right, right is the right to life. You absolutely can't have any other human right if you don't have the right to first take that first breath. Um, and I think even if full-time political work isn't your thing, I really want to drive home the point that these freedoms and human rights cannot be taken for granted. Christians cannot be absent from the democratic process. It's the voters who determine the legal framework under which we live out our lives and our faith. And when we don't participate, we're giving the right to decide that framework to our secular neighbors. So even if this isn't your calling in your vocation, it, it is an incredibly important piece of what you need to be thinking about as you go into life as, a, as an American citizen and a voter um, or participant in our public discourse. Um, <clears throat> so I always pray for God's favor and guidance and, um, and wisdom in my daily activities, but I also, also always constantly remind myself that the outcomes of my work are in God's hands. Sometimes we wonder, are we making any progress? And that is an important question. But I think that um, Daniel also put it well, that his job was to, um, to ask for wisdom, but the, the job of setting up kings, removing kings, setting up other kings, and giving wisdom to the wise and the knowledge is the, God, is the work of God. And that is an important context to put things into when Washington can be full of gridlock and, um, and uh, just an inability to kind of accomplish the things that we want to. But we do sometimes accomplish things, and always we're faithful. That's the most important piece. So there are lots of biblical examples of God's people serving and interceding in government. I think of Esther and Joseph and Nehemiah. But, um, but Daniel's a great model because he came into public service in the king's court as a young man. He um, was selected as a young man who had good training to come in and uh, learn the ways of the king's court and become a servant to the king in, um, in the government at the time in, in uh, Babylon. So like an intern or like me getting my first job, so I got my first job working for a member of Congress from Florida, Congressman Dave Weldon, who was a, um, uh, he's no longer in Congress, but at the time was a leading advocate for the right to life. My job was very basic. I was answering the telephone. I was giving tours of the Capitol. I was ordering flags for people in memory of, of folks back home. Um, and I was providing support to the office. But God knew exactly why he was putting me in that office, because at the same time, I was learning about congressional uh, processes, floor procedure on the House of Representatives, the way the congressional office worked. And because he was such a leading uh, figure for pro-life, I was also learning about the specifics and the nuances of pro-life work. So God knew when he put me there. I was just looking for a you know, member of Congress I liked who I could go to work for. Um, but he knew he put me there because he had plans for me down the road to continue to dig more deeply into that issue. 
And then right off the bat, Daniel had an interesting situation where he was asked to um, eat food that God had forbidden. And so he immediately had to exercise negotiating skills. That is a huge part of what we do in Washington. And what's neat about what Daniel did with his negotiating skills is that he didn't just go straight to um, a stalemate. He instead looked at what his um, opponent in the discussion had to say, which was, well, gosh, if you don't eat this food from the king, you might be too skinny, and I'm going to get in trouble. And he said, okay, well, let's just try. So he, he came up with a compromise or with an um, a, a, a interim trial period. And so he tried. They remained healthy, and they were allowed to eat according to God's teaching. Um, and, you know, I find frequently in negotiations over the years, the most important part of a negotiation with someone who's diametrically opposed to your worldview is to try to figure out where they're coming from, what their goals are, and then just offer different approaches until you can find a way to accomplish your goal, but to maybe do it in a way where you can get to a good place. It's not always possible, but sometimes it is. Um, also, Daniel demonstrated humility. He said, and you see in these verses, God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding, and again emphasizes that God gave. Uh, you don't find a lot of humility in Washington, D.C. People are pretty, pretty full of themselves at, at times, it may seem. But um, there are a lot of humble individuals as well. And when we put these things in the context of God being sovereign and humbly doing our work, I think that we're able to be much, much more effective and put ourselves aside and instead focus on the work that needs to be done. Uh, Daniel also uh, demonstrated excellence, not only in the big moments, but also in the small moments. So the work in between. So we think of Daniel running in and interpreting dreams. Um, I have some great memories of being on the House floor when a bill I had worked on passed the House, or being in a, um, on the House floor when a bill that we had worked against right up until the last moment, um, fighting to prevent abortion funding in Obamacare. Those were big moments, but there's a lot of moments in between where it's important to, um, to demonstrate excellence. And then fifth, integrity, and that's where we get to Daniel in the lion's den, right, where Daniel had to um, get his faith tested. And uh, he was, he, his opponent said, I can't, I can't seem to get him on doing his work wrong, so we're going to try to make a rule that pits an earthly king against the, the eternal king. And he, um, he remembered who, who his true God was in, in that moment. So I think all of those are sort of really key pieces of, um, and grounding pieces of trying to, um, to be a Christian on Capitol Hill and, and to do your work well. <clears throat> and they help, help Christians to be effective. Um, so, back to my story. I worked for Dave Weldon, as I mentioned. Eventually, I joined a, the staff of the Bipartisan Congressional Pro-Life Caucus, as was mentioned. I uh, then served there as the executive director for over a decade and had the opportunity to work under the leadership of Congressman Christopher Smith. Congressman Smith has been in Congress since the 80s, so probably longer than many of you have been alive, and throughout those years he has demonstrated a deep dedication to human rights, whether that's human trafficking, religious freedom, um, and the right to life. So I am very privileged to have had the opportunity to work under him and to work with a wide range of members. Um, more recently, two years ago, I then moved to the Susan B. Anthony list, where I'm proud to advocate for pro-life laws both on Capitol Hill and um, in the executive branch. So my job is to lobby government specifically on the issue of abortion. And I remember one time I went into a negotiation um, over some language, and it was people I didn't know, and um, somebody, some member had brought me in, and they wanted me to um, help figure out how to get this language straight so there wouldn't be any abortion or pro-life problems with it. And I said, yes, I'm kind of an abortion specialist. And this person kind of looked at me like, who 
would want to do that? And I am pleased and proud to have that expertise um, because, as I mentioned before, I don't believe that any human right can be, clearly no human right can be enjoyed if you don't first have that right to take that first breath and that first right to life. And so as long as our culture devalues the lives of some, we're really devaluing the lives of all. So um, our, I have a couple verses for you here. Um, so, you know, our biblical calling is to defend the weak and the vulnerable. People are special because they're made uniquely in the image of God. We are to give justice to the poor and the orphan, sometimes called the fatherless. God creates a unique individual in the womb, something that's evidenced by science. We are to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves, those being crushed, the poor and the helpless. What, are we, what we do for the least of these, we do for the Lord. It's hard for me to imagine a person more helpless more vulnerable, or more the least of these than a helpless unborn child who is literally being crushed in an abortion. So I, I um, believe that this issue is absolutely worth becoming a, um, an expert on and investing my career on. You don't have to be a Christian to believe that all persons deserve equal protection under the law. Um, so, But before I go deeper into abortion policies and statistics, I do want to pause for a minute and just say that this is not a message of condemnation. There is love, hope, and healing for women who I believe truly are the co-victims of abortion. So if you know somebody who's experienced an abortion, um, or if you've experienced an abortion, go to abortionchangesyou.com for resources and community. And if you're facing an unplanned pregnancy or know somebody who is, go to optionline.com to find help and support. This is not a message of condemnation. At this, on, on the other side of that, I want to now go into some of the pro-life policies and topics that are incredibly important. Oftentimes, I think Christians fall into a bit of a complacency about abortion. We believe it's wrong, but, you know, not kind of forgetting the magnitude of the issue. So every year, there are 926,200 abortions per year, 332,757 carried out by Planned Parenthood alone. That means in the time we spend here together, 60 preborn babies will have lost their lives, and 22 at the hands of Planned Parenthood, the largest abortion chain. Just last week, New York's sweeping abortion law received a lot of attention. It is sweeping. It enshrines a right to abortion right up until the very moment of birth, well beyond when a baby could survive on their own, well beyond the time when a baby experiences pain. It even repeals a law that's being used currently to prosecute a man who um, stabbed his pregnant girlfriend, killing their 26-week-old unborn child. That law is currently being used to prosecute this man for, for manslaughter or for homicide, um, but even that law was repealed under this New York sweeping abortion law that was signed into law last week when Governor Cuomo celebrated by lighting the World Trade Center pink. So you see that here um, in a celebration of this reproductive rights law. There is an incredibly deep irony that goes alongside of that lighting of the World Trade Center pink. When you look just down below in the memorial, remembering the lives lost on 9-11, there are 11 unborn children who lost their lives. 11 babies memorialized at the World Trade Center while abortion rights are being celebrated overhead. On the other side of the coin, oh, oops, sorry. All right. Uh, we have children with disabilities being targeted, but there's good news there. Ohio has passed a law that has protected children with Down syndrome from being aborted. Um, of those diagnosed with Down syndrome in the womb, 
as many as 85% are aborted in the United States, leading to a 30% reduction in the Down syndrome population. The statistics are even more dire in other countries, 98% in Denmark, 90% in the United Kingdom, 100% in Iceland. Now that's 100% of the babies diagnosed, so it's particularly telling that you see this expert in Iceland who says, well, yeah, there were two babies who survived, who escaped, essentially, the search and destroy mission. There were two babies born in Iceland who had Down syndrome because we didn't find them in our screening, a literal search and destroy mission for children who, ex who have Down syndrome. Um, and I'm proud to say that Ohio has passed a law the Supreme Court will likely consider that protects babies with Down syndrome from being targeted for abortion. Abortion discriminates against our fellow humans based on their size and location. The risk for children with disabilities is greater, but that discrimination goes well beyond disability to race and poverty. The black abortion rate is 3.4 times the white abortion rate. 75% of abortions are carried out on poor or low-income women. Some would like us to believe that abortion is rare in the United States. It is not. There have been 60 million abortions since Roe was handed down, equaling the entire population of 18 states. 19% of all pregnancies end in abortion and 40% of unplanned pregnancies end in abortion. 926,000 a year is more than the number of lives lost to cancer. It's more than the number of lives lost to heart disease. Uh, well, there's a tempt temptation sometimes to overlook this topic. The statistics cannot be ignored. Nearly half of all abortions are repeat abortions, and abortions in cases of rape, incest, or to save the life of the mother make up less than 2%. Studies, um, let me just add that abortion abandons moms and babies both to the plight of abortion. Abortion is heartless, is heartless to the mom as it is to the baby. Studies have found that abortion contributes to preterm birth and fu in future pregnancies and increases the rates of suicide and depression. All too often, women are pressured or coerced to having an abortion, leaving them to believe that they're entirely alone without options. But there is good news on that front. Pregnancy centers now outnumber the number of abortion centers by four to one. These centers provide care to nearly two million people and save the community uh, at least $160 million per year. And there has been progress in the legislative arena as well. In 2003, President Bush signed a law banning partial birth abortion and that was upheld by the Supreme Court in 2007. Still, other uh, late-term abortion methods remain broadly legal. The fact that we do not have a national prohibition on abortion after 20 weeks when a baby feels pain puts us in the company of only six other countries. We are one of only seven countries that allow abortion past the midway point, and we're in the company of China and North Korea. However, 21 states have passed laws protecting unborn children at 20 weeks, and we are working very hard to try to pass a law protecting unborn children at 20 weeks in the federal legislature in Congress. Um, that's certainly not our ultimate goal. We want to protect all unborn children, but a very common sense first step would be, be to protect children who can feel pain. Think about pain. We all experience it. We all recoil instinctively if someone were to pinch us or in, other, in any other way inflict pain. Unborn babies do the same thing. By 20 weeks, they have all of the pathways ne necessary to respond to pain. So we have made great strides in a number of states. Um, we're working in the federal legislation, on federal legislation to protect babies at 20 weeks. Um, 
but our work continues, and again, our job is to be faithful, to shine a light on the reality of abortion, and zealously work the day, for the day when abortion is not only illegal, but also unthinkable. I want to give you a little information if this is a topic that you care about. You're welcome to go to my organization's website, the Susan B. Anthony List, or if you're more interested in the research side of things, we're an advocacy organization. Our research arm is the Charlotte Lozier Institute. <coughs> While my comments have focused on my experience in professional life, I just want to speak for a moment to those of you who know that this is not your calling. So like I knew that biology was not my calling, you might know that public policy and working in Congress is not necessarily your calling. I still would encourage you to consider whether there are reasons or opportunities that you might take to uh, work either in your civic or pro-life, if you'd pursue civic or pro-life opportunities to protect unborn children and to participate in our legislative and government process. Our culture puts a huge emphasis on what you get paid to do, and I think we all know at Covenant College that our profession should never be segmented off or devoid of God's calling. It is also true that that, that work that you get paid for should not ever be considered more important than the work that you do in your free time or that you're not paid for. So while you're following the Lord's leading, God doesn't always check to see if the work that you do <coughs> is attached to a, to a paycheck. So I have a huge respect and gratitude for the men and women who foster drug-addicted babies, for the families that take in older kids and foster older kids who are in need of a place to be, for the, for the people who counsel and encourage moms struggling with an unplanned pregnancy, for the folks who take the time to call their member of Congress or show up at a town hall and be a respectful voice for justice. There are many, many ways that you can be engaged in defending life and involved in the political process. I think it's probably clear that I didn't start out with a plan for every step of the way through life after covenant. Wouldn't it be nice if every diploma came with a roadmap? Mine did not. I suspect yours will not either. But my roadmap has been revealed in chunks at times and in fragments at times. My job was always faithfulness. The rest is up to the Lord. Just as Daniel pointed to God's providence in the installation of governments, he has a plan for each of your lives. Looking back, I see how God put me in just the right places at the right times to carry out his calling for me, and I know that he will do the same for each of you. With that, I think I'll just close us in a prayer. All right? All right. Lord God, I thank you for Covenant College. I thank you for each of these men and women who are here learning and growing and building relationships and developing into the young adults that you have them to be. I pray that each one of them would have a clear sense of your love and providence for them. I pray that you would lead them step by step toward the acts and activities and careers and volunteer opportunities that you have for them, that you would stir within them great things for our future, for our neighbors, for our fellow human beings, including unborn children. Amen.